Hallmark and FTD's favorite holidays of the year. Well, we're glad you're here tonight. We're going to be in the book of Ruth before the night's over. <clears throat> but a couple things I want to do. So where does all this love stuff come from? I mean, St. Valentine's Day? Really? Where did that come from? That's got to be invented by FTD and Hallmark just to boost their dividends and their profits. No, actually, this holiday arose from a clash of beliefs between two gentlemen. And this is historical information that might help you to better understand. The clash came between Emperor Claudius uh, Gothicus uh, II and Bishop Valentinus Flaminius. Uh, Flaminius, there we go, Flaminius. All right, good. But the clash between these two men is what created the issue that we call St. Valentine's Day. First, uh, let's learn about the story of Valentinius and exactly what happened. First of all, you need to understand he was a true gospel preacher. He was a real preacher, a real person in history. And uh, the emperor was at war with the northern Goths. The Roman Empire was trying to destroy the Goth Empire to his north, and what the emperor found, came to find out, he had a desperate need for more Roman soldiers to send into the battle. And what, uh, Got, what uh, Gothicus found out is he concluded single soldiers fight better than married soldiers because they don't have any ties to home and consequently less to lose, they make better warriors. So as a result, he, by edict, decreed that he forbade single soldiers from getting married. And he didn't care if they lived in fornication. He didn't care how they lived. They just weren't allowed to ever be married. Well, this preacher refused to obey the law. And as a result, Valent Valentinius was arrested, and he continued to marry soldiers that wanted to get married, especially just before they went off to war. And as a result, he was arrested, placed in jail, and guess upon which day that Bishop Valentinus was executed. Oh, you guys are sharp. It was on Valentine's Day. What a coincidence that Valentinus was executed on Valentine's Day. Isn't that, isn't that a coincidence? Well, viva amore, amen. Uh, actually, he stood for the truth. This is, by the way, this should be a very familiar battle that is coming of uh, church versus state, of doing what's right versus doing what's convenient or politically correct. And so uh, we hope this battle doesn't come to us like it did to him. Uh, in uh, the magazine called Woman's Day in 2014, they gave a list of the top 10 gifts that men give their partners on Valentine's Day. Anyone know what number one might be? I heard it out there. There it is, number one, flowers, roses. Number two? Wow, you guys are good. Must have read the article, huh? All right, chocolates. Number three is a gift card. Really? Well, that's because men don't want to be seen going into some of those stores in the mall, so they just get mama a gift card and say, go do it yourself, okay? Number four is lingerie. Usually, again, by gift card, of course. 
Number five is a candlelight dinner. They take them out to dinner at some nice restaurant or something like that. Number six, by the way, you notice they're getting cheaper as we go. Okay, number six is some kind of perfume, even though that's not necessarily cheaper, okay? I was watching a show and they had four bottles of perfume for $1,200. And I'm going, what? Oh, Chanel number five doesn't cost that much, guys, okay? Number six, or number seven, rather, is jewelry. Very popular in Hawaii because they have what's called Hawaiian heirloom jewelry. And you can get it with names embedded on it and little plumeria flowers and hibiscus and really pretty and it's cheap and you can get it for Valentine's Day. And then number eight is romantic coupons that mama can cash in anytime she wants to. Uh, like take 57 mile walks. My wife loves to walk. And one year I made a mistake of doing this and I gave her a compute coupon that I'll go on a walk with you anywhere you want. Never done it since. Never done it since. <laughs> you get really cheap and some guys just get a card, you know, last minute. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love you very much, honey. Here's a card, you know. And then the cheapest of all is just a smooch. Oh, happy Valentine's Day, okay? All right. So the two most romantic books in the Bible, anyone guess what they are? Oh, you guys are so sharp. Song of Solomon is one of them. Uh, it's a poetical book that highlights the deep love that Solomon had for a Shulamite woman. Remember, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Well, some of them he loved more than others, and this one he really loved. And so he wrote this poem about the Shulamite girl, but actually the Holy Spirit used him to write about how Christ feels about his church. And then, of course, the second most romantic book, I would say, is the book of Ruth. Ruth is a very romantic book, which is where we're going to be tonight. This book is the, the focus of the message, is a vivid picture of how true love can overcome, transform, and give wings to our future. I love this book, and I've read it many times. In fact, when I was a new Christian, uh, I heard Dr. M.R. DeHaan. He was the founder of Radio Bible Class out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he was a prolific writer. And one of the books he wrote was called The Romance of Redemption. Now, I know you can find it out there in this day of eBay and Google and all this stuff. It's out there on one of those uh, book websites and Amazon. But The Romance of Redemption by Dr. M. R. Hahn. And it just, it just lit me up as far as the book of Ruth. I just love that book. So first, we got to show you, I want to show you, after 40 years of ministry, I want to show you the 10 practical ways that you can strengthen your marriage. We're going to start with number 10 and count down to one. Okay, number 10. The 10th way is to show love to your partner in unexpected ways. Don't give, if you give flowers on Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, I mean, come on, that's obligatory. You got to do it when they're not expecting it, okay, for it to be romantic. Number nine is never make independent or selfish decisions. I used to know a gentleman who one day went out on his own without consulting mama and bought himself a brand new Corvette Stingray and brought it home, parked it in the driveway and said, "Hun, come look at what I got. And he couldn't understand how when she came out and saw it that she wasn't going, oh good, a Corvette. Instead, she was angry and he goes, I don't understand why she's so mad. Uh, come on, you can't make decisions like that without consulting mom. 
Number eight, keep God's word at the center of your relationship. It has to be at the center. Even Jesus taught the parable of the guy that dug down, found bedrock, and built his house on the rock. If you build it on sand, it's headed for doom. Number seven, surround yourself with like-minded friends. That's why the pastor talks about coming to church. Surround yourself with like-minded friends. You go hang out at discotheques and bars and stuff like that. Let me tell you something. You lay down with dogs, you get up with fleas. You ever sat by a campfire? Remember when we had that pastor's class thing up here on the hill? I can't home. You know what my clothes smell like? You sit around smoke, you're going to smell like it. Okay? I promise you. So be careful who you hang out with. Number six is trust your partner enough to be open and vulnerable because she or he is going to know everything about you and love you anyway because that's what love is. They know your worst secret, but they love you anyhow. And that's how successful marriages grow. Number five is learn to forgive mistakes without verbal ridicule. I grew up in a family where you couldn't do anything without being ridiculed. It didn't matter what it was. My clan up in northern Iowa, if you dropped a pencil, it was stupid. I mean, that's what I grew up around. I mean, it was just like that all the time. If you made a mistake, somebody was right there to jump on you like a bunch of vultures. Can't be like that in a marriage. You're headed for trouble if it's like that in a marriage. You have to learn to forgive mistakes without verbal ridicule. I think this is what Jesus had in mind when he said, if we'd look in the mirror, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we're more honest with the person in the mirror, we'll be a lot slower to condemn someone else. Number four, don't ever stop doing fun stuff. Listen, in all the counseling I've done in all my years of ministry, I notice when couples come in, they don't do fun stuff together anymore. When they were dating, oh, they dated on the basis of strengths. She thought he would always open that car door for her. He thought she always smelled like sweet perfume. She, she thought that he always every hair was in place and he always smelled like Brute 33. And then they get married and about two weeks into the marriage they're going, who is this person? Can't you ever pick your socks up? I thought you could cook. Wow. Somebody needs to see the lighthouse before they hit the rocks, Amen. Don't stop doing fun stuff together. If they like to golf, go golf. If you like to play tennis, play tennis. If you like to bowl, bowl. Do something that's fun. If you like to go on walks, well, I don't know. <laughs> that one I just, you know, well. I send my daughters, okay, as my substitutes. Okay, number three, be good listener without interrupting. You know if you interrupt someone when they're talking, it's the same as saying, I don't care about what you're saying. What you're saying isn't important. Don't interrupt. Listen, that's why I hate watching news shows where they just bark and interrupt each other. I just hit the mute button. My favorite button on the remote is the mute. <laughs> Number two, encourage your spouse to set and achieve personal goals. Neither of you should ever stop setting personal goals. You want that degree? Go get it. Go get it. Don't stop. You eat an elephant. You know how you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You know how you can accomplish anything in life? A little bit at a time. The pyramids were built one block at a time. You'll be a whole lot closer 
if you do something. So have some kind of goal in your life. Number one is you thank God every day for a partner that you can share your burdens with during this journey. It is not good, even God said, it is not good that man should dwell alone. And so God made him a helpmeet. A fellow once, his wife once asked, where would you be without me? And his response was, in the garden, sister, in the garden. How many of you know that Eve was not Adam's first wife? How many of you ever heard that? Oh, yeah. There are people out there, you'll run into them someday that know or that believe that Adam or Eve was not Adam's first wife. His first wife's name was Lilith. And she was the first person of the National Organization of Women. She was a liberated woman. She would not obey Adam. She ran the show and finally Adam complained. And so God banished Lilith, put him to sleep, cut a rib out and made Eve. And uh, as Dr. Jerry Thorpe once said, the rib that God took used to go right across the belly here. And so now when men get pot bellies, it's her fault. Because the rib used to be right here, held that all in. And now it's just gone. All right, a time for romance. Let's talk a little bit about Valentine's Day and the book of Ruth. Now turn your Bible to one of the most beautiful love stories there are in the Old Testament, the the book of Ruth. I love this book. It falls during the time of the judges. Probably as best as history can note, it falls during the time of the judge called Tola. T-O-L-A. And so uh, Ruth would, uh, during that time, a great famine hit. And that would have been when Elimelech, who was told specifically in the Bible, two places they were not to go when God brought famine upon Israel, two places they were commanded not to go is Egypt or Moab. And Elimelech packed up his family and moved him to Moab And you know, that's the prequel to the story that nobody usually likes to talk about, is that Elimelech made a bad decision, and it cost his life and the life of his two sons. Now, it's also good testimony how God can take the messes we make, and He can bring something good out of them. And that's what He did with Ruth. And so in the book of Ruth, the actual story of Ruth and the foundation of this love story goes back to the city of Jericho, is where the story actually begins. Because this woman of ill repute that ran a bordello in Jericho, and what was her name? Yeah, Rahab. Rahab decided to house the spies, cover them up, and so she spared the spies' life, and as a result, her life was spared. Your God is going to be my God, and she joined up with Israel. And because of it, she ended up in her joining up with Israel, finding a man and marrying him, and they had a son. And the name of the son was Boaz. Now, Boaz is half Gentile. So what do you think he cares that Ruth is half Gentile? Or that Ruth is a Gentile? You think that bothers him? Not one iota. It may bother the Jews, but it sure didn't bother him. And see this love story. God begins working in our life long before we know he is. He has laid the foundation for our futures in ways that would probably shock every single one of us in this room. So let's talk a little about Ruth. There's a few verses in the book of Ruth that we need to read to get a scope of it. I'm going to go ahead and bring them all up on the screen, and now let's go read these particular passages. We're going to start with chapter 1 and just verse number 22. 
This will give you the kind of an overview of the book. It says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Naomi's coming home. In fact, when she came home, they saw her and said, This is Naomi, and Naomi means happy. And Naomi was angry and said, Don't call me that. Call me Mara. And Mara means angry, bitter. Because I went out full and I came home empty. She'd not had a good life up to this point. So let's go on now to chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. It says, And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn uh, after him whose sight I shall find grace. And she, Naomi, said unto her, Ruth, Go, my daughter. And she, Ruth, went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who is of the kindred of Elimelech. Now, isn't that funny how God does things? She didn't have any idea whose field that was. She's from far, far away. It's just a hunk of land. They're harvesting barley. I want to get in this field and do something. And she just by hap. You know how many of those haps are in our life? Turn to the right, turn to the left. When I was in Bible college here at Springfield back in, in uh, 1977, I can remember... I lived up on North National and one bad winter, I mean, we had like 14 inches or 15 inches of snow in one night. And uh, it was so bad and I needed to get to school and I couldn't miss any more classes in this particular class. And uh, I went out to start my Mercury Monarch and that stupid thing wouldn't start. Piece of junk. I was kicking the tires and mad as a hornet. Came in the house frozen, drank a little coffee, just as angry as I could be. And then I went back out, got in the car and everything, boom, started right up. Back the car down out of the driveway on the National Avenue and started up toward Kearney. When I got to the corner of Kearney and National, a Highland Dairy truck semi had flipped on its side, slid across the intersection, and wiped out about four cars. And it had just happened. If my car had started, it is very likely that I'd have been probably one of those cars wiped out. Let me tell you something, those little haps, they're in our life, amen? And God knows what He's doing. Let's go to the next one, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6 as we read on. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord, the Lord bless thee. If Boaz, uh, then said Boaz unto, or unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? Man, she was pretty. Caught her eye, caught his eye. Wow. And so the servant was that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitess. Notice he didn't even give her name. He just right away gave a slur. She's a Moabite. This Moabitish woman damsel came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me... Uh, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And so she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. All right, now let's go on. Chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. As the story continues, beginning of verse 15, it says, And when she was risen up, 
to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. I don't want you to restrict her. Don't restrict her movements. Anywhere she wants to pick up, she can pick up. And reproach her not. Don't you scold her. And verse 16 now. And let fall some of the handfuls of purpose for her and leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. I want you to drop a little extra for that gal. Oh, he was sweet on her, you could tell. And when Naomi came home, I mean, when Ruth came home, Naomi saw how much she had picked up and Ruth said, girl, where did you steal that? I didn't steal it. I happened onto this field and honest, this is what I picked up. I'm not lying, honest. Said, my goodness, what was it? Who's the owner of that field? And said, Boaz. Oh, sis, she's sweet on you. If he letting you have all this grain, let's continue our reading now. Go to chapter number three now, verses three and four. It says, now the, now Naomi's giving her some instructions in romance. Now wash thyself therefore and anoint thee. That means put on some sweet perfume and put thy raiment upon thee and get thee down to the floor. Make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie. And thou shalt go in, uncover his feet, lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And he said unto her, all that thou sayest to me, I will do. So this Moabite girl doesn't have a clue how they do romance in Israel. And so Naomi's telling him, now this is what you do. You go, you watch where he sleeps. When he goes to sleep, take the blanket off his feet. You lay down, use your dress to cover his feet and keep them warm. And when he wakes up, he'll tell you exactly what to do. Now, how would you like to wake up in the middle of the night with somebody laying down there across your feet? Yeah. I think that probably gave uh, Boaz quite a start. Amen. Now look at verse number 14. Verse number 14, same chapter. And she lay at his feet until morning, and she rose up before one could know another, while it's still dark outside. And uh, he said, let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Now, there's probably several reasons for that, but one of which was he had a plan, and I don't want it to be foiled, so don't tell anyone you've been here. Now, let's go to chapter 4, the climax chapter, and just look at verse number 13, chapter 4 and verse number 13, and where we read this. So Boaz took Ruth, this is the end of the happy story, so Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And by the way, that son became the great-grandfather of David. Listen, God knows what he's doing, amen? I'm telling you, he can take our messes, and he can turn it into something wonderful. He takes the sticks that are left over, and he builds a palace. I don't know how God does it, but I've seen it over and over in lives that I've seen in my life. Had a soldier once come in, he and his wife heard each other's throat. They were going to rip each other apart. He was an E6 and he'd been already in combat and, and he didn't come back the same man and they were just at each other's throats and sat down and uh, they would barely talk to each other And after a couple of meetings. Well, can I tell you something? Today, oh, they're still happily married. He's got a son in the Air Force. He's got two other kids. He's retired from the U.S. Army as a first sergeant. And they are now serving as missionaries in Germany. God knows what he's doing. He can take the biggest messes we have and he can turn them into something wonderful. Boaz would have had to overcome a lot if he was going to date this gal, if he was going to love this gal. First of all, he's got to overcome political divides. There's an ancient hatred between Moab and Israel. I mean, how many times do you think she got spit in the face? Probably plenty. 
Let's go back here. There are racial divides. She was Moabite. Jews were told never marry a Moabite in the law of Moses. They could marry anyone else but not Moabites because they were an incestuous people of the children of Lot and his daughters. Don't ever marry a Moabite. He had to overcome that. He had to overcome social divides because the truth is the they Moabites were viewed as swine still talked about as swine in the Jewish writings to this day, in the Talmud. And they had to overcome economic divide. She's penniless, shekelous. She's shekelous. She hasn't got it. Why do you think she's picking up little seeds out of fields? Whereas he is a wealthy landover. He's well-to-do. And not only that, then there are spiritual divides because she came out of paganism. But she told Naomi, your God is going to be my God. Where you die, there I will die also. So be it unto me and more also, if aught but death separate me and thee. In fact, Boaz commends her, you have come to shelter yourself under the wings of the God of Israel. Can, can I pause on this? If you ever run into an Islamic person who wants to tell you it doesn't matter what you name God, Allah, it's all the same. Really? As soon as they tell you that, here's your response. Then I want to hear you say since they're all the same, that God's name is Yahweh. That will separate it right there. Okay? You will definitely get um, a different look from them. Okay, let's move on. Boaz is half Gentile himself, and he sees this beautiful Ruth, hard at work in his field, and he's smitten by love. His, lear his learning that Ruth was from Moab did nothing to restrain his feelings. Instead, it energized them. Really? I found one like me. I wonder how many times Boaz had to overcome this stuff in his life to rise up to where he was. Because after all, Rahab the harlot, that's his mama. So, Ernest Hemingway, we've all heard him. He wrote some of the world's most famous books. He committed suicide. But uh, he wrote The Old Man in the Sea and... Uh, you know, to whom, for whom the bell tolls and farewell arms. And I'm sure you've probably read or seen movies that are made of his various books. One day he was sitting in a restaurant, minding his own business, and a bunch of guys recognized him. And so they bet him. They made a bet. And they said, we will buy your lunch for you if, and the, this was the bargain, we'll bet you that you cannot write a meaningful, dramatic story in six words or less. He sat there for a moment. He reached over and pulled a napkin out of the dispenser. He took out his pen and he wrote down something and he handed it to them. These were the words that he wrote on the, mic, on the napkin. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. A dramatic story in just six words. Listen, we all have dramatic stories, and whether you tell it with a lot of words or with a few words, God's working in all of our hearts. He instructed his workers then that they should not molest her, leave her alone, allow her to glean wherever she wants, pick up whatever she wants. In fact, I want you to drop some extra stuff for her, because I want her to know that I'm interested in her. I can still remember in church, I, I was singing in the choir, and Karen sat clear in the back, on the very back, and when Pastor Landis said the amen, she was the first one out the door, 
and the parking lot was in the back of the church. It had sort of a flag driveway. And, and well, how do you catch someone? There's no side door. How do you catch someone when they get out the door? And she was shy anyway, so she was lightning fast. So one day I chased her down. I was running up behind her, and it's a good thing she didn't have a taser. Because she'd have probably swore I was some kind of a... She'd have probably nailed me, but I was able to at least ask her for a date. I was sweet on her, and, and I wanted to get to know her. Now, 45 years later, I don't know if she's ready to take back that bargain or not, okay? But uh, listen, when she returned home to Naomi, she carried an abundance far beyond what a gleaner would normally pick up. It was obvious that she had picked up more than what gleaners pick up. And so Naomi immediately understood the affection of Boaz that was being placed on her. When I was still in high school and dating, I, I ran into this girl up in Grundy Center, Iowa. Her name was Mary Ann something or other. I don't even know her last name. Anyway, she gave me an address, probably a false one. But uh, she lived out in Dunkerton, Iowa, some little dunk out in the middle of nowhere, east of Waterloo, east or northeast of Cedar Falls. And so I, I decided to drive out there. Now, in the meanwhile, what had taken place is my sister had been witnessing to me, and I didn't like it, but I would go to these Bible studies because there was food. I didn't care about the preaching, but the guy who ran the, ran the Bible studies was Reverend Harry Erpelding, a retired Baptist preacher who had been uh, in the ministry for almost 45 or 50 years. And so I was driving out there in Dunkerton, Iowa, looking for this address. It was probably a bogus address anyway. And so I'm driving along, and I'm getting frustrated that I can't find where this girl lives. And so as I'm driving down one of the country roads, I see this mailbox with Reverend Harry Erpelding written on it. And so, well, I know this guy. And so I turn into the driveway, and I drive up to the end of that driveway and go in. Mrs. Erpelding sees me. Stephen, come in. I'm just a kid, and she brings me in, gives me milk cookies, and they preach the gospel to me. And Harry says, would you like to be saved? And I said, no. And he said, that's okay. He said, I can't drag you kicking and screaming to Calvary. But he said, before you go, can I give you this magazine? And he handed me a magazine, which appealed to me. It was called Jesus Christ Solid Rock. And so I took that magazine and I took it back to my apartment or to my, to my bedroom in my house and I threw it on top of the dresser. But by the end of the school year, it was either study for a physics exam or read that religious magazine. And the magazine won. So I pulled it out and it was about prophecy and the Antichrist and the tribulation period and the rapture. And when I finished that thing, the Holy Spirit had literally ripped my heart out and done surgery on me. And I got down on my knees beside that bed and I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save me on May 10th, 1972. Now, isn't it funny that I go looking for a girl I can't find? I find a mailbox I didn't know was there to a minister that I didn't care even lived. He offers me milk and cookies and a magazine and through that magazine, I end up finding Christ the Savior. Let me tell you something. God works in mysterious ways. He knows what he's doing just like he knew what he was doing with this Ruth. She didn't understand and she followed Naomi's instructions. She laid down at his feet. She did exactly what he asked her to do. Uh, she did exactly what uh, her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz woke up, he was scared. He wondered, who is this? And then he realized immediately the gravity of the situation and what was going on. And Boaz then began to developed his plan to get the love of his life. 
We're not going to always understand what is behind what we do. A daughter, true story, a daughter one time, her name was DeRozier, and she never understood why her mother wore these elbow-length gloves her whole life. Her mother even did the dishes in the sink wearing these gloves. She would not take her off. The girl said she could not remember a day that her mother didn't have those gloves on. She'd come out to breakfast, they were on. She'd go to bed at night, they were on. The gloves were on the entire time that she knew her. And then one day, as a teenager in her senior year of high school, the girl walked into her mother's bedroom quite by accident without knocking, and mom had the gloves off, and they were laying on the bed. And the girl saw the badly scarred and surgically sewn together arms of her mother. And the mother immediately reached for the gloves and tried to put them on, but it was too late. The daughter saw the arms. And the daughter went over and stopped her mother and said, and looked at her mother's badly scarred arms and said, What in the world? You've had this your whole life, and I never knew about it. Why didn't you ever tell me? She said, There's got to be a story behind this. And see, the story was when the little girl was in just a little baby laying in the crib, their house caught fire. And when the firemen could not do anything more for the house, Mrs. DeRosier ran into that house, risking her own life, and rescued her baby who was wrapped in a blanket that had caught fire. And in the meanwhile, she received third-degree burns all over her arms. From that day on, the teenage girl that was ashamed to be seen with her mother in public was so proud of her mama. And the agreement was, you can come to my graduation on one condition. Don't wear the gloves. Because I want everyone to see how much you love me. That you are willing to risk your life for that. There's some greater scars than that, folks, someday that are going to be shown. And they will say unto him, what are these wounds in thine hands? And he will answer them, these are the wounds wherewith I was wounded in the house of my friends. These are the wounds that set us free. The wounds that are in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boaz desired to seal the deal in the presence of witnesses, so happiness could uh, never be taken away from him. So he made a deal, and they exchanged the shoe, and the guy at first said, I want Naomi's land, and then he said, oh, by the way, you've got to marry this Gentile girl. And the other guy said, oh, if I bring her home, Mom will kill me. I can't do that. You can have it. And so Boaz was happy, and he married his wife, and they basically lived happily ever after. It was a wonderful story of the end. Listen, you ought to seal the deal. You ever been in a lavatory in an airplane or on a train and forgot to slide the lock? And somebody comes walking in on you. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of fun, okay? Listen, seal the deal, amen? Lock that baby shut. In fact, I met my wife in Colorado when I was in the Army, we both went to the same church, and we dated, and then I asked if she would marry me, and I was a little worried she might not say yes because she was married to a father who told her marry anyone except a soldier. And so I, uh, and I asked her to marry me, and we had a whirlwind courtship, and we got married in December, December the 15th. And then I took her back to meet my relatives in Iowa. Listen, that was a very wise move. Because I think if she would have seen my relatives first, you could forget the wedding. 
I kept bragging about my brother David. I, he's just five years older than me. I work for him. My brother Dave and I are so close. We love each other. We worked hard together. We, I just kept bragging on David, so we went to Dave's house first. We went into Dave's house, and we were there, and, and uh, everything was fine. Marlene made brownies, and we were having fun and talking until I started to witness for Jesus. And my brother's countenance changed, and he became visibly furious. He jumped up out of his chair. He ran across the room. He bent down and stuck his fist, and he had a huge fist. He stuck his fist in my face, and he told me, and I'll leave all the expletives out. He said, you get your Baptist, you know what, out of my house, and don't you ever come back. Karen and I got up, went out, got in the car, and we're sitting there, and the car's real quiet. And so then Karen breaks the silence, and she goes, and this is the one you're the closest to. <laughs> I'm surprised right then she didn't say, let's go back to Colorado right now. Listen, seal the deal before, amen, before. And so Boaz made sure he sealed that deal. There was no taking it back. Ruth was going to be his. What a sweet story. And so it's a time for romance. Listen, do you know this beautiful letter, this beautiful story, written probably by Samuel, is there to tell also about how much Christ loves His church? Think about just these three things. It's works versus grace. What was she out doing? Working, working, working. And all of a sudden she marries Boaz and she doesn't have to work anymore. As soon as we're wed to Jesus Christ, the works can stop. You don't have to earn your salvation. It's given to you freely. It doesn't mean you have to stop working for Jesus. We want to, but you're not doing it to get salvation. You're doing it because you're saved. But you don't have to do it anymore for salvation's sake. What about this one? Saving Gentiles. Isn't it neat that God cares about the world? Do you know Ruth is even listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1? He cares about the Gentiles. Ami, the people that were not my people shall be called the people of the living God. Many shall come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham. And there will be one fold and one shepherd. And his name is going to be Jesus. What about this? He outwitted the claimant. That other guy that thought he had claimed, he outwitted him, didn't he? Oh, Satan thought, I've got these people. I'm going to take them to hell. And Jesus outwitted them. They thought when they killed him on Calvary, it's over. And they had a three-day party. And all of a sudden, the ground shook. And all the demons said, what was that? And the stone rolled away. And out walked this one that they thought they killed. Except now, death hath no more power over him. He is our Redeemer. What a beautiful story Ruth is. So when you think about Valentine's Day, remember... Valentinus was a real man. He stood for what was right, even if it brought government wrath upon him. But it's a beautiful picture of us and how we should stand, not only just for our spouse and for our loved one, but that we should also stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. Think how much he loved us. How much more should we love him back? We are the bride of Christ. Let's act like we're the pure bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, happy Valentine's Day.